How does the mind influence the mind? The mind cannot function without memory, and memory is just the mind aware of itself. So how do images tell us how we see and who we are? Ralph Gibson is one of the most interesting American photographers of our time. His international renown is based on his work, which is shown and collected by some of the world's leading museums, including the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the J.P. Getty Museum in Los Angeles, and the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation. Gibson's work reveal a meticulous aesthetic and visual territory edging on the surreal. His recent books include his memoir, Self-Exposure, Sacred Land, Israel Before and After Time, and Secret of Light, which accompanied his exhibition at the Deisterhallen House of Photography in Hamburg. He is a Leica Hall of Fame inductee and has been awarded the French Legion of Honor. In 2022, the Gibson Goyen Museum of Photography, devoted to his work, opened in Busan, South Korea. Ralph Gibson, welcome back to The Creative Process. Well, it's lovely to be here, Mia. Thank you for the invitation. Your most recent exhibition has just been in Germany. Just tell us a little bit about that, the evolution of this. It's a large body of work there. Yes, it's an interesting situation. Uh, there was a museum in Hamburg called the Deichterhallen, and many years ago, a collector of my work donated a lot of prints. And so five years ago, before the pandemic, the director of the Deichterhallen came to my studio and said, we have 70 of your pictures. We'd like to make a show that covers your work from 1960 to 1986. I said, well, that's a peculiar situation. Why don't we do a show that starts in 1960? So he said, good idea. I will send my curator. Sabine Schnackenberg. And then things got slowed down with the pandemic and everything. So three years later, Sabine comes and chooses the work. And we opened that show last June in Hamburg. And then it was up for June, July, August, September. And now it just opened in Munich with another curator named Isabel Sieben. And what's interesting about this show is that I was out of town when Sabine was able to come to my studio in New York. And I told my assistant, let this woman do what she wants. And of course, I had never done that with any curator throughout my entire career. And so she chose a lot of work and it was shipped and insured and dated and signed and everything. And when the show opened at the Deichterhallen, I saw my work in an entirely, absolutely different way because of the incredible vision of this curator. I mean, I had worked with curators for the last 50 or 60 years, always fighting to have this in, take that out, something like that. But I learned a very big lesson, which is that mine is perhaps not the final word when it comes to my work. And if somebody wants to show it in such a vast way, there's a big catalog also and a lot of essays. I learned that I was seeing things about my work that I wasn't quite cognizant of previously. You know, we're speaking English now, and I probably have a vocabulary of 5,000 words. I don't think of all of them, but I carry them with me. But when I was walking through my exhibit, 300 prints, I don't remember every decision I made as I was printing every picture over the last 60 years, but I was carrying all those feelings with me. And so as I walked through that exhibition, I experienced that. The weight, the lightness, the happiness, the everything of all those decisions, and it produced a kind of experience that as an artist I had never previously intersected. And so this is something that I will continue to discuss when I, quite often I do consultations online. I have a thing called the Advancing Photographer in connection with Leica. And people are showing me their work and have shown me their work throughout my entire career. 
And this is kind of a new approach to looking at things. So it's a long answer to your question. No, it's very fascinating because we, in our previous discussion, you talked a little bit, I guess, you know, about your creative process or your signature, how you do things. And, but you're talking about there being an, an intuitive sense, a sense that you can't be completely in control yeah. of. For when it works, working at its best, maybe mm -hmm. you shouldn't be totally aware. And that was so fascinating, as you said, that the curator selected that. It's for Germany, maybe has a German sensibility, but that you lost that kind of control. So there might be some things that you would normally instinctively take out. Absolutely true. Oh, and I look at the catalog, and there are things I would definitely have changed. And the thing is that I'm not quite so, I'm not so much in need of a control at this phase in my career as I once was. And... You know, I have exhibited many of those works many times throughout the evolution of the work itself. It show starts from 1960. I've had 250 shows, something like that, of those works to a greater or lesser degree, depending on when the show took place. So there's some kind of message here that I continue to decipher. I think about it. And of course, you know, I'm really only interested in my next photograph. I work today. I worked yesterday. I process my files here. I'm working on project in France where I've been working since 1971. Histoire so, de France. Yeah. And now it's called Salon Littéraire because <laughs> it's transmuted, it's modulated, it's changed into many things, but the book is out. So we have many experiences in our lives as artists, which I continue to be surprised at how, how my work positions me in, in ways that were unexpected. And it makes me think about when you speak of this grammar, there's a visual grammar. It's not always been written down exactly because we just kind of see and therefore we think we know it. And you've spoken about your storytelling is perhaps a storytelling of subtraction. So when your photographs get rearranged and what you discover about yourself from that might be like a musician playing your melody, you know, jazz uh, riffing on it. That's an interesting, that's an interesting concept. Uh, the great photographer Ansel Adams left his negatives to the center of creative photography with the understanding that people could take them and print them and reinterpret them. I think that probably more what occurs in my case is that years ago I observed that you could take a fashion photograph, a great man ray fashion photograph or something, and 25 years later it was art. It was no longer a fashion concern. And, and Claude Lévi-Strauss, the great socioanthropologists has made this sort of thing clear. Society changes, and with it, the context through which we observe something has changed as well. So quite possibly, the way this woman, Sabine, she was younger than I, she's probably in her 40s, you know, and Isabel, they both did their thing. They would see it through a different set of filters, you know. I like the way, for example, we take the work of recently uh, deceased artists like Warhol or Basquiat, Recently, there was a great show there, which I was in town for, at the Vuitton. And every five years or so, their importance doubles as artists. It is not just the price of the painting. It's the nature of the work and how it impacted what was before it and what came afterwards. And we're all amateur historians, all art historians all our lives. And we continue to feel this sort of thing, obviously, I remain obsessed with Twombly, whom I think is ever more important. And now there's an interesting Kiefer show across the river here I'm going to go see. And so I like the role of art in society and my relationship to my society and to art in my society. And of course, being here in France, which is a little bit different, 
because things here are all French, and we see them through that matrix. Now I'm interested in this phase of my life in how does the mind influence the mind? Yes, yes. you can't have a thought without yes. the thinking yes. apparatus. And recently I encountered an interesting idea, which is that the mind could not function without memory. And even when, even in the present tense, memory is just the mind aware of itself. And I study a lot of phenomenology, and I read a lot of guys like Paul Valéry and Peggy and people like that. And I love the solipsistic state. We might have discussed that before, but I am continually evolving in terms of my formal approach. I'm working a lot with longer lenses now. And so now I'm back in France looking at things through a different perspective. And I was working with the 135 millimeter lens, which tends to compress things too much for this particular architecture. The Haussmannian idea doesn't really invite that degree of compression, but at about a 75 or 90 millimeters, certain interesting things occur. There's a the shapes are transcended and reprocessed into a, a quasi-cubistic kind of alignment within the composition, which brings me to my most complex idea. And I always come to France with my most complex ideas, looking for their reflection, which is that we all know that we are indoctrinated to conventional notions of Renaissance perspective, picture plane and receding backwards from the picture plane. I have forever wanted, I've had this subliminal urge bubbling slowly to the surface of my consciousness that made me want to put the center of the composition on the edge of the frame. And in pursuit of this, I access a kind of visual territory that I wouldn't have otherwise even known existed. You return often to this concept of the edge of the photograph being reality and just bringing it to that edge so it's kind of surreal. And it's speaking of this edge of frame, non Renaissance perspective that we're accustomed to. Did you find in certain cultures, does that occur more frequently, is accepted more? Well, we can start Paleolithically and work our way forward, but as we know, on the caves and in the all through Egyptian art, things like that, it was all very two-dimensional, very flat, very silhouette-ish, seen in profile. But I think what happens is that, that as all forms of media, from writing on the printed page to reproductions of art and photography on the printed page, all the way through cinema, all the way through IMAX, which is a giant screen, all the way down to your little portable where you can look at the same movie and digest 90% of the narrative at a considerably reduced scale. So these issues tend to shift the territory within which they are examined as media evolves, you see. When McLuhan said the media is the message, it was pretty good, but he said his best line was we're looking at the future in the rearview mirror, which is much closer to what's actually going on, you see. We are compressing time. Yes, it's so strange. I agree with you. Our sense of identity is bound up with memory. I wonder at that point, like there's some people who lose all sense of memory, mm -hmm. but they can remember one thing, sometimes miraculously, like the play, like a concerto or something, but then have no short-term memory. And I wonder, you know, what happens to the sense of self? like when, you, when that happens. But when I look at your photographs, and one thing that you have been very much uh, dedicated to is the vertical horizon. Mm -hmm. And so that seems to indicate that thing, that there's things going on in the edges that we don't see. And mm -hmm. what I like about yours, and I think of it as a signature or something that, you know, you need to your style, and I can recognize your images, it, by, you know, taking that out, having this vertical horizon, this pillar, 
it has this kind of a voyeurism, or it's almost like looking through a doorway or looking, you know, a kind of discovery. Well, I've never wanted to be invisible. I've never really... I'm voyeuristic, but in a purely intellectual way, you know. I would suspect that years ago, I, we may have discussed this previously, my, the reason for functioning in a vertical format is because the horizontal rectangle is the proportion of all narration, all visual narrative in all society now. It used to be just Western, but it's all around the world now. TV is horizontal. It's only with the emprise of the, the iPhone that people are starting to go to vertical or square again. But historically, your television, your laptop, your cinema, all these things, many tableau. I wanted to eliminate any reference to the narrative because essentially all I'm really trying to show, is, all I'm trying to express is how it feels to look at something. And I, the event, if I wait until somebody's getting shot in the head in, in Vietnam, that famous war photograph, that's the event, that's the content of the photograph. In my case, the content is when I get my vision sufficiently stimulated to where I can perceive the corner of this desk with sufficient clarity to render it in some sort of monumental way. I want to make pictures of absolutely nothing surely based on the force of my perception and the power of photography. It's so strange because when you think about so much of what you believe, how you perceive the world, and you know, I have severe myopia. Well, I can see now I have contact lenses in, but it does limit the aperture, right? Mm -hmm. Interview film directors, and they're oh, you know, these wide angle shots, as you said. And I was wondering, like, why do all of that? Because no one can see it all. And from my point of view, no one can yeah. see that wide. And then I spoke to them, and some people actually see that wide. And it's an effort for them to oh. make that concentrated, the, the intimate, like the one-on-one -on -one kind of, you know, eye contact. So have you wondered, speaking of grammar, how much your perception, the way your actual eyesight or your linguistic, your syntactical grammar, how that informs your perception of the world? Absolutely. With this in mind, I, I struggle to look at things and remove their name. I don't want to see this as a blue glass. I want to see this as a shape within which there's some sparkling water. And in fact, I recently photographed a Badois bottle in a very abstract way. But the first thing I want to do is take the name away from the object, I, absolutely. Which, when I was photographing the figure, I found I could do a lot. I could just find a shape, find a form. It will always say human, but sometimes, mostly you could tell it was female, but mostly not, sometimes not. And I think that what happens is you never effectively, 100% succeed in taking a picture of the glass and not triggering the figure of the glass. But what you can do, what does occur, occasionally when the muse smiles upon us, is that we're seeing certain characteristics of glassness that we had never heretofore previously considered. Yeah, and sometimes when you're taking an, an everyday object like a glass, you're showing us what's its potential, its actual beauty, that we didn't have that time alone with it to pause the time to appreciate its beauty. Sure, I mean, it's quite known that that's one of the roles that art functions in a society for the people you know, I've asked many people far wiser than myself, why is art necessary? What does it do, really? Now, socially, it reflects any society. It's the last thing the world any society does, but it directs great monuments to its own greater glory, just usually prior to its collapse, by the way, historically. But there's a lot of reasons. People make art for a lot of different reasons, myself included. And I realize that's one of the conditions that has been attendant to all creativity. People want to express things. Yes, what and why? 
You say, what and why? This becomes an, an immediate question I ask myself. In reading Jacques Derrida, they ask him about love, and he said, well, is it the who or the what you love in somebody? Which is a very good approach. So when I'm looking at this glass, is it the who or the what in this glass that, that I'm interested in? And you see, most artists perceive most things in terms of their shape. If I hold up my five fingers, I say, what do you see? Most people say a hand. What about the space between the fingers? You see, that's essentially what delineates the hand. Now, I like seeing things in this way. I'll start with their shapes. Our friend Eric, recently we have these lunches where we bounce off current ideas with one another, you know. My current one is the meaning of all shapes is that all shapes have a meaning. And I won't necessarily have to defend what the meaning is. I simply want to look for that meaning in that shape because it's just going to lead to a place that I would not have otherwise accessed. It's so interesting when you look at children and they're really discovering their vision for the first time. And I think that they must see things more abstractly or just with their feelings or, you know, their sense of shape or even the physics of things. Sure. Even everything is a mystery and they, you can see them gnawing on their foot as though it... Legitimate object to gnaw upon. <laughs> but like it's almost separate. <laughs> I think that it must be so surreal to be again in the, the brain of a child to just discover it. That's true. I, I was with a friend and he took his little daughter. She's four years old or something. You could see an elephant. She couldn't see it. We were too close to it and it was too big. She couldn't see it. And so in a sense, it becomes a part of you. So the instinct to capture images or to make music, is it some sense, you know, you said why? Is it to make it a part of you, to understand your times? How has it helped you understand the times you've lived in? I used to be, the way I measured time for a very large part of my life was I was always in preparation. I remember as a child, I was preparing to make my first communion, then I was preparing to go into junior high or grammar. There was always these lapses that existed ahead of us where we were progressing through time predicated on noteworthy events. But I went into the Navy, then I got my driver's license, then I got out of the Navy. And so all these things were, I was always functioning as though there was going to be a significant event which occurred in some kind of a concept of the future. And that coincided in parallel with the fact that when you're young, you feel essentially immortal because the idea of being old or dying is so abstract, it's so far away that you see, I don't know what age you are. Let's grab an age and say 27. Oh, that's a nice age. Yes, I thought you might like that. So the thing is when you're 27, all you really can do is process the experience of having lived for 27 years. When you're 40, that's what you know. You know what it's like to be 40, but you don't really know what it's like to be 45 until et cetera, et cetera. So now that I'm at this phase of my life, one of the only, Bukowski has this beautiful quote. He said, when you're young, time lies before you like an ocean. When you get older, you feel time rushing towards you. Well, I'm in that phase where all I'm really interested in doing is maintaining my health and doing my push-ups and profiting from as much time as I have left because now I'm at the very peak of my powers as a photographer. I'm getting pictures much faster and in greater ratio and I'm moving through the experience at a rate that I always had yearned towards. 
and in terms of exhibitions and publications and all that, I have everything I wanted when I was 40. Yes, and so speaking of time, because photography is one of maybe holding still time, then you've worked at the music, of course, that's a time-based art form. When we last spoke, your illustrated book of mm -hmm. your life, Self-Exposure, had just come out. And so this was a way of, I guess for the first time you had described your life, you had recorded aspects mm -hmm. of your time, but it was the first time you put it in words. Now that when you look at that, are you still keeping your journals? Is it an ongoing project? I am more interested now in writing on aesthetics from a theoretical basis. I find I'm able to express certain things that I'd always wondered about on a purely intuitive level. And so that's the nature of my writings. I have a book in the works entitled Theorem, which picks up from that series that you're familiar with, the vertical horizon and nature object, things I did after that. They're much more based on theory of perception, theory of socially defined shapes, theory of cultural applications to how we perceive. And you see, I can express le ciel, I can express the sky. The two different languages, same sky, slightly different. There is a difference when you say le ciel or the sky. Cielo in Italiano. You see, it, the emphasis, the sound of the word produces a response that impacts our perception of the object being described. So if the word sounds slightly different, the object is going to shift. In an interesting way, it doesn't have to be positive nor negative, it's just always interesting to me how I think of it, which gets us closer to a, a musical construct, because music is purely abstract sound, capable of defining the undefinable, and it also happens to be a language that's universally spoken. You could place certain pieces of music in, in any society in the world, and it would be to some extent or another perceived, understood. I recently read that there's never been a people that didn't have a music. And that can be a very small group of people. It doesn't have to be a gigantic society like Asian or Caucasian. It could be a small splinter group somewhere. We sh should say for those who don't know your whole history, going back to your very earliest days, people are interested in how did you make yourself the photographer you are today. And you had in your earliest days, you mentioned the Navy, you had also been assistant to Dorothea Lang. Just tell us a little bit about that. Well, I was born in 1939 and my father worked at Warner Brothers. And as a little boy, I was around a lot of famous actors. And my father was assistant director. He worked with Hitchcock on a number of films. And so I was occasionally on the set as an extra. And I met Hitchcock a few times. And a lot of people from that period, Orson Welles, and these giants of the cinema in Hollywood during the 40s and 50s. And I would visit the set. And the lights were very bright. They were orthochromatic films. So they needed these huge arc lamps to illuminate. The film was very slow. And to get a small f-stop, they had to have massive amounts of light, which accounts for the tropism in my work the high contrast, the black and white. But then, after, when I was 12 or 13, due to alcoholism on the part of my parents, the family broke up, and I was out of the house at 16, and into the Navy the day I turned 17, and they just made me a photographer. Now, I, had, I felt that I had failed my family when my parents divorced as an adolescent. You subconsciously think it's your fault. And then I had failed high school. Then I went to photo school in the Navy and felt failed that as well. And so I had reached an interesting neighbor at age 17 and six months of being totally useless, worthless, etc. So I wrote the captain a letter basically begging to get back in school, and he sent me to school again. And I came out, 
photo school, this time highly motivated. And I was crossing the North Atlantic in a storm, standing watch at three in the morning, and I was freezing and miserable, and I shouted at the sky, the lightning, some, I'm going to be a photographer. Well, on the other side of that storm, above that storm, must have been my lucky star, because I have never for an instant doubted my destiny or my reason for existence. This is not a metier. This is an identity. And so with that, I got out of the Navy highly trained technically and fully armed emotionally with a sense of what I was going to do with my meager existence. So this is something quite often parents say, would you mind talking to my son? He doesn't know what he wants to do. I said, well, how old is he? He's 32. I said, well, you know, it, it gets more serious when they're about 30. Prior to that time, a lot of people don't really know what they want to do. But one of the things that I stated recently in an interview, as, as I ease up on my 85th birthday in a couple of months, I realized I am all men. I am all good. I am all evil. I am all things human to a greater or a lesser degree. But the one thing, my true compass that guides me through the whole thing has been my life and my need to to see myself reflected in a certain way. When I put a new picture up on the studio wall, it keeps me going. It produces the person that I want to be. Without that picture on the wall, I'm not too fond of myself. With it on the wall, everything's fine. And I think that it's actually been a gift, I think, your autodidactism, because last time you spoke, you said you hadn't completed your high school degree. That's correct. <laughs> Which is, I think, is a matter of pride. It is now. Yeah, <laughs> since you've always been teaching yourself, or, you know, you sort of mentors or your assistant, you know, Robert Frank, you worked on two films with him, I guess, you know, so you, that kind of teaching, but it was outside the classroom. And I think that it serves you well because you had have to find your own way. Well, you know, everybody does. And in that book, Self-Exposure, one of the things was I did realize as I was writing it, all autobiographies are chronological and anecdotal. They, that's the way they unfold. And I realized that there were certain decisions I had made along the way that were crucial. And there was really only a handful of them. But I was very fortunate because I had that initial desire to, to be a photographer. I don't even know if it was a desire. I think it was something much, much further beyond that. I would have to say it was more of a, I didn't really choose photography, it sort of chose me, you know. I mean, no lo contendere, I just did what I knew I had to do. There was a sense of devoir, you know, you just do it, and so. Yeah, you found your way, but you're also a musician, and I think, you know, in self-exposure, you're kind of a philosopher as well, and your way, it's not just the photographs you produce, it's the life around those photographs that may get distilled into photographics. They're one and the same, yes. I, don't, I wouldn't be able to effectively delineate where my life ends and photography begins. There's, if my eyes are open, I'm seeing. If I'm seeing, I'm essentially in that valence within which or from within which come the images. And you're a talented musician, not just playing, but you, you make your own compositions. And What drew you to that? And what can you express best with your guitar music that you don't do with your photography and vice versa? Well, you know, in Self-Exposure, I wrote, I'm good enough as a photographer to know how good I really could be. And I'm good enough as a musician to know how good I never will be. But that isn't in the slightest. It does not deter me whatsoever. I perform about once a year. And I did a performance at the Dr. Holland at my opening. I was going to do one here in Munich, but there's so much travel involved, and they, they didn't want to get involved in shipping all the pedals and effects and stuff. 
I have to practice for weeks to give a 20-minute concert. I mean, it's just crazy. But the fact is that Roland Barthes wrote it beautifully. He said, the best experience in music is playing music yourself live because it's not just acoustic. It's your entire nervous system, your physiognomy, everything about you is connected to the production of this sound. So you're experiencing it through your entire entity. Next best to that is listening to it played live. And after that, of course, recorded music. But then he did go on to mention that some music is very satisfying to play and horrible to listen to, such as Schumann on the piano. You know, there's something about that. It is moving because I was re-listening at the time of our last conversation. Your wife, Mary Jane's mother, had mm -hmm. just passed away and you played for me this very, mm -hmm. you know, moving and original mm -hmm. piece. It was just something that came from you, but was very original and touching. So I, I loop that. I wrote that in a very short period of time. I, uh, it just came to me fully formed. That's how music seems to be. I, I don't consider myself the music. I'm kind of the radio through which it plays. Yeah. I feel that way about photography too. Mm -hmm. But I like the idea of being able to express these feelings. I've often stated that I'm the only guy who loves his mother-in-law as much as his wife. And so I was fortunate to be with her as she passed, playing that for her. So. Uh, you see, when you work as an artist, you just never really stop. It's more of a philosophical way of embracing the entire living experience. If my eyes are open, I'm working. If I'm looking, if my ears are open, which they are, I'm listening. I can't play music in here and do photography at the same time. I can do one or the other. But I've never had background music while I was working because then I would sit down there and, and listen to the music. But, you know, this is all part of my creative process. 
I wonder, as you're putting together your books or planning for exhibitions, do you have music in mind, or is that a soundless experience? Well, what really happens is that my guitar is always on in the studio, and I have one where we live in our condominium, and I play, and one thing fuels the other. Occasionally, I will make a distinct reference to a photograph. A photograph will stimulate a specific patch of music. Music is linear. It is defined in bars and measures, as you know. I might come up with 16 or 32 bars of something based on some idea, based on looking out the window as the seasons change. On this trip, I decided that I'm going to, I'm going to go back. I've photographed so much and been thinking so much about photography. Purposely didn't bring a guitar because I wanted to finish this current project I'm doing in Paris, which I have finished as of yesterday. But I'm going to do a thing called on the elements, the four elements, fire, water, earth, and air, because there's a lot of different musical textures I want to. Fluidity, water is an easy thing. To. I love the texture of concrete sound and atonal music as well. And by doing the four elements, I'll be able to incorporate something that I hadn't solved before, which is a tonality and pure acoustic systematic sound, you see. I will just deal with the kind of Cajun definition of noise, and I will bring to it a Stravinskyan set of organized. Stravinsky said you can listen to birds singing, but it's not music. It's beautiful, but it's not music. Music is organized sound. Interesting definition by a guy who's fully entitled to, to claim <laughs> such. <laughs> so I, I found that idea led me to this conclusion. Sometimes I do like to listen to birds singing, though, too. Maybe because I don't know who the author is. I feel like they're kind of opening up to nature. But I, I really like to see the four elements. Well, you're capable. You know, we can do anything we want. And I will make a video to accompany it. And the linearity of the video helps with the transitions in the music and vice versa. If like looking at a film, looking at cinema without musical accompaniment is really a boring, dull, flat situation. I mean, it gets, you, you begin to see. There, there's a lot of sounds that I like. And I, I used to I'd buy the CD and I'd listen to something and I, it doesn't work. And yeah, I'd see a contemporary dance with some of these sounds and all of a sudden everything was, it was in balance, the sound and the motion. Yeah. So sound is, in fact, motion. It's a temporal uh, motion. It moves yeah. temporally. I'm going to start speaking for two seconds. But what comes out, I, I don't want to interpret other people's music, and I don't want to do anything except play my own music. The only time I break that rule is for Brazilians, for Bossa Nova, which I, I was asked recently to play at a Brazilian woman's wedding, young woman's she said, would you play the girl for me, Panema, as I'm walking down, as I'm coming, a huge wedding, a couple hundred people, and I did it. That's great music. That comes under the good enough to know how good I'll never be as a composer kind of music, you know. Yeah. I actually got to learn about Ralph Gibson at a very young age because he features his work on one of my favorite album covers of all time by Joy Division on their album Unknown Pleasures. We are able to instantly recognize Gibson's images because they are mysterious yet symbolic. Not only are Gibson's photographs emotionally captivating, but hearing about his inspiration behind those photographs makes it even more fascinating. As someone that has always been surrounded with music, 
It's really interesting to learn someone's frequency and the way that they navigate this world. He talks about how some of his melodies and rhythm patterns are what inspired some of his photographs, capturing moments that reminds us of those melodies. We are able to connect to his work because it's raw and it's authentic. Another reason I find Ralph Gibson's pictures captivating is the fact that he takes pictures of the human body, more specifically women's bodies. His work also explores eroticism and sensuality. It's actually really interesting because his inspiration came from his guitar when it came to women's bodies. He wanted to put a different light on them so that it's everlasting, so that they leave thinking about that specific picture, so that it gives it a different light. It's inspiring to see what someone has done with their craft. And I think that his latest book is a reflection of that. I think it took a lot of courage for him to write about his childhood, his relationship with his parents, and the challenges that he faced. It helps us understand the man and the mind behind these photographs. You are able to see life through another person's perspective. And now back to the conversation. You know, in our last conversation, and I know that you embraced the new technologies. You've transitioned, of course, from film to digital, mm -hmm. faster working. You can work without assistance or all these kind of advantages. And I'm wondering, I mean, developments in the newer technologies like AI are on board. I, I know you're a big optimist, but I wonder, it's changing all the time. It's crazy. Like some people can you know, type a few words in and you know, make me an image, you know, in the style of Ralph Gibson, the but four elements. <laughs> I have, of course, given thought to this. And one of the things that, even as I speak, it's exponentially improving. It goes very fast. They're scraping more and more different things. You have to have a source for anything. You know, it comes from somewhere. But one of the things we'll notice is that I have a colleague in Brazil who helps me with everything, organizes my online stuff, and we're dear friends. And Thanks to Zoom, we talk three, four times a week. And he said, I'm not personally threatened by it. He said, you shouldn't be. How could somebody describe one of your photographs to make me one? You see, yeah. now the other thing is this. What makes any work of art unique? Why do some works of art endure? There's this question of religious morality and certain religions forbid art. One of the reasons is because God is immortal and art is too. The Mona Lisa has, is, is now 500 years old and she's still trucking along. And it's, it's, as long as that object remains, what it produces is going to have qualities of immortality. Now, I work introspectively as an artist. That's the operative word here. I don't really feel that you can say to an artificial intelligence, show me a kefir in a moment of self-doubt. I don't think he's threatened, nor am I. I think the key word here is introspection. And I just don't think you're going to be scraping that out of Wikipedia or any of those great search engines. Yeah, because you said earlier, you know, you're very interested in how does the mind affect your life and your perception and your thoughts and that memory, you can't have it without memory. And it seems to me the big difference besides not having a body, that would be the other thing, but is that... And AI, you know, what if it gets fed everything, so potentially it has every memory. So it's not, it doesn't have a self, like, it well, can't, it doesn't have your memories. It doesn't have you, that's the thing. What it has, see, we'll go back to my, we'll go back to my origins. In 1950, my father was unemployed. The Hollywood shut down because television had just arrived. And they said, oh, the movie theaters are going to close until they started coexisting and making films for television. Now. I believe that AI will be an incredibly useful. We were doing a press release 
Mary Jane, my wife, is very active in it, so she write a press release about an upcoming this or that, and it spit out something that you could then personalize. That's very useful in that way. But humanity has endured primarily because of its inherent characteristics. Now, he might... I see things like NFTs and AI and Spotify and file sharing and things like that. You see, there was a time when I moved to New York where I could drift through the empty museum galleries of the moment and have my epiphanies. Now you go to the same museum, it's like, a, it's like the Tokyo subway. You, you know, it's a bunch of sardines. You're really, that's what's, that's what's happening because there's too many people in the world for the delivery system to any longer be effective. Museums are delivery systems. We're moving into a world of the private museum now because the great collectors are building their own museums. I am happy to report, since I've seen you, I have a museum in South Korea in my name. And so, you know, I'm funneling, channeling, putting hundreds and hundreds of prints into this museum in Busan in an attempt to personalize the situation as opposed to... But by the time you've got 8 billion people living in the planet Earth for 100 years, which I plan to do, young lady. Yes, right. Is we're not going to, there, there's a lot of people like me. We know that people are living longer now thanks yeah. to medicine and nutrition. And you and do yoga sun. every day? Sir? Yeah, I do. I stand on my head. I do all that stuff. But, and I've been walking here in Paris a minimum of three to four miles a day, which is what that really does good. And I do tend to think that file sharing, more people are listening to more music than ever before. You would have previously had to put a tower record on every street corner in order to give it a, effectively distribute that much music. Now, NFTs, obviously, as the audience spreads for a work of art, quite often the content goes down. You could, you could have a photograph and sell the original print and have 100% of your intention, or it could be reproduced on the cover of the New York Times at 72 DPI, three by four inches, and you'd get some of it, but you wouldn't get the whole thing, but a million people would see it. Now, with the digital situation, working digitally, if the image stays in that digital space permanently, the only real shortcoming is the excessively bright, heavy saturated screen on your computer. That tends to exaggerate things a bit. But we could just bounce this discussion up on, on the satellite and would have never have left a space in which it transpired, right? It's important that there's the two things to be democratic and accessible to all and, you know, stretch around the world. I mean, that's really important. That's about making it's educating and it's not elite. It's my feeling. There's a huge curiosity now. Oh, it's a novelty. AI. Oh, it's, can you tell? Was it a painting or did an AI do it? You know, and but I fear that somehow it's like with new generations not being able to have an original experience, like you said, with the music being able to play it or play it live, they'll be so, they grow up in artificial air in a way that it doesn't matter to them somehow. Other things will matter to them. Huh? Yes. You see, we, you, you've touched on a number of, of conditional circumstances. One is that I have continually studied the guitar throughout my life. That is to say, teaching my fingers and my mind. So Eric likes to say it takes 15 years to learn how to paint. Well, it takes 15 years to do anything, basically. Almost any profession starts getting good. Now, that leads us to the fact that, are you looking at art for 8 billion people, or are you looking at art for people who profess art? See, you are a professional journalist. You write. You're an art historian. You profess it. That is to say, you're probably making your living doing this. 
<laughs> so, all right, I profess photography. The difference basically between the contentual level of my photographs and contentual level of music is that the music's fine, it's beautiful, I'm proud of it, but I never profess it. I never said I'm going to live or die by the integrity of the music that I perform or compose. I do effectively say that in terms of the images that I generate and have since I was basically 17. I've lived from photography as a way. So the moment you profess something, so let's apply that principle. There's a very interesting thought where Paul Valéry said, you take a given set of protocols and you apply them to an ever-changing set of conditions. So that's what I do when I photograph. I take my aesthetics and I apply it from this glass, or maybe instead of a glass, we'll do a bottle, or instead of a bottle, we'll do a chair. Three different conditions, same set of protocols. So let's apply that to AI or somebody who's going to make art in AI. If they do make introspective art in AI, then, in fact, they did, and we'll know it when we see it. But at this point in the discussion, everybody's afraid that somebody will. Yeah, no, we <laughs> that is true. It's fascinating. I mean, I, we're all curious. It's like the Pandora's box, whatever, you know, but keep the pain in the box. Don't let it come out in our domain. Somebody asked me, what do you think about Instagram and photography? To which I replied, this is quite recent, I said, Instagram did to photography what the telephone did to poetry. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. But I think there'll always be a hunger and a need. I, I want to make sure that the audiences will be there. There always will be an audience, but we'll be we'll to know the difference because otherwise, why are we doing the hard work? Well, one of the yeah. things is, let's consider by autodidactism. You know, if YouTube decided to charge a couple hundred a month, I'd happily pay it. But because I'm on it every night, I don't put much information up for free, but I certainly get a lot of information down for free. For example, when I'm working a composition in Logic and I don't know how to do a software move, or when I'm laying out one of my books and I'm preparing a file for color tweaking or things like that, there's always questions in software. Nobody knows everything. Even the ones who do still type in, they know where to go to get certain answers. So I find that to be an interesting set of circumstances, the transfer of information and its value. But it does get sorted out. They just sorted out the writer's strike today in Hollywood. But that's they haven't sorted out the actor's strike. That's hot on the tail. Yeah, that's another thing threatened by the AI. I think it's a lot of opportunities. We just have to be careful because we're doing a new AI channel. That's why I've mentioned it. Not created by AI, but discussing these things, the importance of having artists and philosophers involved with uh, the technologists are sometimes they don't feel limited and sometimes it's important to think about limits. I think I think you could legitimately you could assume some validity in taking either side of it because essentially we'll know when we see it. I don't mind that at all. I what I do is that time moves much faster when you get older and I'm sort of in phase with the planet. Technology is moving about the same speed as I am, or vice versa. I don't know what it is, but all of a sudden, I don't have to sit around and wait for years for something to happen. And I recall that as a characteristic of my youth, which, which I still regret. It would take forever to get anything done when you're young and ineffectual, you know. Yeah, and you mentioned the planet. That's another big, important issue that we're thinking a lot. We have a climate change challenge, sure. so I always a, like it's, to ask. It's for real. It's yeah. for real, but is it? does that mean we have 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, or 10,000 years? That, that's not for real. We don't have a concrete answer to that. And the galaxy is, in fact, full of dead planets. Yeah, we don't want to get there. I might be the last man alive. 
That's, as you say, the art is the, it creates a sense of immortality. One, one lives on and one and shows people what's important. And so I was wondering what your reflections are on the importance of the environmental humanities in terms of engaging and telling storytelling. Of um, course. Well, I was fortunate to be able to visit the original Lascaux cave in Ribarat, the Dordogne. And in any of these Paleolithic caves, we find these there's certain themes. There seems to be, as long as humanity has been on planet Earth, there's always been war. There's always been migration. There's always been a search for God, a form of worship. And there's always been a fear of the apocalypse, the end of the world. Which, if you open up Perry Match tomorrow or the New York Times on the front page, you will find those four subjects are still being addressed. Now, so we're talking about 30, 40,000 BC up to today. Now, of course, things are moving much faster now than they did 40,000 years ago. But it's an awful big planet. And Gloria Anderson gave me this great line. She said, people who think that technology is going to solve the world's problems don't really know much about technology or their problem. But she admitted it wasn't an original line. She was quoting. But it's true. I think that capitalism, which created much of this pollution and this and that, will find a way of sustaining itself in cleaning up all this pollution. Plastics, for example. There's talk about organic vermicelli who are going to consume all this plastic. I don't know. It might have been a pretty bleak in Paris, where we're sitting, in 1939, when a certain army was crossing the border at warp speed and deporting people by the millions. Yeah, that might have looked pretty bleak. Far from the music. That might have been pretty bleak. Yeah. You see, that might have looked like the end of the world, too. I know. I think so. It's, as you said, it's a question of time. So we're lucky to have conversations with a lot of these climate scientists, you know, they work on the IPCC and others, and it's just about taking it seriously. I think that with technology and change of behavior, we can overcome it. It's just acceleration. Um, David Fenton, this is a, something that helped put it in perspective for me. David Fenton, you know, the climate activist, he's worked for years like Jane Fonda and Milson Mandel and these, but now he's focused on the climate. He said that we, to put it in more real, tangible terms, the degrees of change, this 1.5 degree of change since pre-industrial times, it sounds too low, but in actual terms of heat that we are adding as people to the planet, it is the equivalent of a million atomic bombs going off daily. So that's in there as a blanket that's collecting, that's not escaping to outer space. And when I heard that, I mean, I know that this is from, you know, the well, scientists quote this to me. <laughs> that's better. That's more effective. So I don't want to get bleak on it, but I want, you know, we all have it's to. It's a legitimate work. concern. Yeah. It's a legitimate concern. But the warning, which are rather emphatic, the better warnings are the ones that include the solution to the problem. One of the things, when you said a million atomic bombs, one of the things that served to do in my gray matter was give me a kind of a mental concept of the size of the planet. Now, as I'm constantly looking out the porthole of airplanes flying to Asia or flying back to North America or something like that, the size of the planet just boggles me. I mean, it's... I'll never be able to really process. Recently, somebody got me onto Google and showed that the, that the planet Earth wasn't even quite that round. You know, you've seen those kind of oblong, funny shapes that the world really is supposed to be, you know. Well, we certainly have to hope for the best. Oh, yes. No, I, that's why I think that, that's why I ask you about the importance of the environmental humanities to kind of sharing stories or a sense of wonder of the beauty of the planet, and I think is really important. Sure. It's like... It's curious, in my lifetime, 
that it has come to this, that this is what we're thinking about now, you know. But you can remember, you know, just going back to your early childhood, you can remember kind of Los Angeles when it was still not quite a frontier, but, you know, it was just being settled around the time you were... That's true. Oh, absolutely. And the oil, I'm sure you saw when there was so many oil derricks. Well, even before that, I mean, when we would ditch high school, we had a club that if you could hold your breath for three minutes, you could come with us and we'd go down to the beach and spend the night wrapped in a blanket. We'd get up in the morning and dive for abalone and have that for breakfast. And that was next to Santa Monica Pier. The water was so pure. The coast was so natural. So, I mean, the fossil fuel thing is clearly, that's being addressed. But, you know, it's interesting how long it takes to change something. Even when people are in agreement, like, for example, in the United States, Linda Johnson signed the, signed the Equal Rights Act, all men are created, you know, in 1960, 64, 65 or something. And there's still half the country doesn't believe that, that that's legitimately the, true, even though it's law. So how long does it take to change 8 billion people when, you know, you have a much bigger, much more immediate problem, which is immigration? Yeah. President Macron rightly states that, that Lake Chad is drying up. There's going to be just a food source for 50 million people who are heading up to the Cote d'Azur. And that's where they're going to be. And Europe, as you and I are currently describe and enjoy it, will probably evolve, that's the only correct word, into another kind of landmass inhabited by people. You said that before. You just discussed different places where you've engaged with culturally. That is definitely in the process of changing or being added to. And I think of photographs sometimes serve as a kind of beautiful, that can be like an elegy to a certain time and a certain beauty. Well, you know, that's, I wonder wherein lies the origin of a nostalgia for the past. What is it in the human condition or in our makeup? I have a great nostalgia for the future, frankly. But one of the things that I'm examining now is that I love, because I did grow up in Los Angeles, and because it was so sauvage and primitive and unformed with nothing but the movie industry and orange juice or something, the fact is that I've come to Europe to pursue my formation, my education. It's essentially taken place here because when I first started coming in 1971, all the people I met, I instantly noticed were all very cultured. So I said, well, that's a pretty clear indication, and I just won't bother you with the names, but they're all rather well-known. But the fact was that I slowly became a 19th-century gentleman myself. Now, what is the 19th century built on? Well, until 1950, the entire planet was built on war, slavery, colonization, violations of all sorts of human rights, et cetera, et cetera, which are now no longer politically correct. So therefore, as I'm sitting here in La Belle France, ce que je vois, this is the grand collision between post-colonial and globalization. And boy, that's like running into a glass door at warp speed. Nobody knows what hit them, you see. Have you ever walked into a glass door? It is a bit of a shock. And well, I certainly have. And you just don't know what you did until, it's, until you've done it. Then it starts to dawn on you. So this is a much more immediate. That we do know what will happen. Practically, it's almost predictable, probably, to the minute. In the United States, we have something like 85% of the people living on 18% of 20% of the land. We could take 20 million people from South America. All it would do would be lower inflation once they started working. 20 million people in Europe, mm, not going to lower inflation, that's for sure. It's going to do a lot of the things we don't want to discuss. But I think that's much more acute. I have asked two generals and four diplomats. 
why the governments of the world are shifting to the right. In Europe, they all gave me the same answer at four different times. In Europe, it's because of immigration, and in America, it's because of the left behind. Les échecs con. You know? So, I mean, this is, these are real concrete, in-your-face, right-now problems that, that could have an impact. Their, their solution or lack thereof could have an impact in the next five, ten minutes, depending where you happen to be. Find yourself seated. And I'm very curious to see how that's going to play out, because it probably will in my lifetime. Thank you, Ralph Gibson, for inviting us into your imaginative world and the discreet and persistent beauty of your images, which tell stories through subtraction and just sharing different aspects of your life through time. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thanks so much, Mia. Great pleasure. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producers on this episode were Sam Myers and Camila Quintanilla. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.